the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Today is uh, part three of a series called 316. And just to clarify, most of the ones that are really significant are actually in the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament, it gets a little less consistent. And, um, but, but the idea here, one more time, is not about a numbers code. This is just, we're looking at some really foundational scriptures. And part of the reason why is because this is how Jesus taught. Uh, now, I think it's important to, when we study Jesus, study his teachings, study his life, to not only notice the things that he said, but also how he said them, the way that he approached ideas, because he didn't talk about everything. Here, here's an example in Matthew 19. This isn't even in your Bible study guide, which has so many scriptures today. And as always, I hope you take this home and walk back through these scriptures, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. But in Matthew 19, Jesus was approached and they were trying to trap him uh, with the issue of divorce. And he didn't really talk about divorce. He didn't go into why sometimes it kind of does make sense and why it sometimes is legal. He didn't go back and condemn anybody for it or anything like that. He took them all the way back to the beginning. And he said, you know what? Well, when God created everything, he wanted there to be one man, one woman. And they'd be one. Do you see what he did there? He took them back to the foundation. Let's not fight over the particulars of how broken the world has gotten. Let's go back to the foundation and let's learn from there. Paul did the same thing. Jesus did this consistently. Here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, um, which is the passage we're going to look at today. Uh, he's talking about trying to find unity in the church in Corinth. And they're fighting over a bunch of different things. They're just going crazy. They're in fighting over which leader they like best. And in the midst of that, he says this, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Which is why a couple of weeks ago we started remembering together what it means to live under the authority of Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at Paul. He's using the same tactic, the same way Jesus taught, going back to the foundations and building from there. This time he's talking about the scriptures. And he told his young protege, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus built a foundation not just with his words but also with his actions. So one of the first 316 passages we're going to look at today at least is in Matthew. We'll start in verse 13. Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. We know from other scriptures that baptism symbolizes us being united with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, right? Does that sound familiar? Okay, Jesus hadn't died or come back to life yet. So it wasn't that that day. We also know from other scriptures that we are baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had never sinned. 
He didn't need to repent of anything. But he still went through this ceremony. And this was the the moment that God chose to vocally say, this is my son, and to tangibly put the Holy Spirit down on him. Because Jesus was building a foundation. And he was building on a foundation. That idea of water, passing through water, had been a symbol God had used throughout the Old Testament. All the way from creation, through the flood, through the Red Sea, through the Jordan River, through so many other things, including the basin in the tabernacle, which we'll talk about more in a second. This was a consistent symbol that he used to talk about major transitions and to mark those and to celebrate those and make those happen. They were an intro, it was an integral part of a lot of things. So Jesus is building on all of that. And then we get to this moment, Matthew 3, 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And at this moment, two things that Jesus would focus on his entire ministry began in a very tangible way. One of those was the idea that God is our father. This was kind of revolutionary to them. And we'll explain that in just a second. The other was that God wanted to live inside of us. The spirit of God would actually come and dwell in a person, not just in a building or in a special mountain or whatever else. Which again is foundational to everything Jesus was trying to set up. But in this moment, you see both of those happening at the same time. We know that this is, these are both foundational to Jesus, not only by what he said and just kind of seeing his teachings and seeing what he did, but even on the cross, listen to what they said to make fun of him. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Remember Jesus had said, they said, what's the sign you're going to show us? And he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Even his disciples didn't realize he was talking about his body, but he was talking about the spirit of God living in a physical temple. Here's the other thing they made fun of him on the cross for. It said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. God's your father, huh? Let's see what happens. Let's see if daddy rescues you. These were major themes for Jesus, and it's part of why they killed him. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him. Okay, so this is pretty serious. I hope everybody's still tracking. But we're going straight into what the Bible is actually saying about these. And I think it's important so many times these days, more than ever, I think, it's important for us to clarify the words that we use. I'm not that much into words. I actually like words and literature and all that, but I I don't clarify these just because I just like it or I think you do. In fact, I'm always afraid everybody's like, oh my gosh, explaining a word again. That's what I'm always afraid is gonna happen. But I think it's important. Here's one. This idea that God wants to be our father There's as many different connotations to the word father as there are people in this room and people in the world. Some of us, we have a really great connotation when we hear that word. Some of us, it's absolutely horrific. Some of us, a father is someone who is a great provider and a wonderful example. And some some of us, we hear the word father and we think of people who run out on you or who are cruel and mean. 
I'm not going to go through all those different diverse ideas. But what we're looking at today is what, what, did, the, what did Jesus mean by it? What did the people understand in that culture that day when, God, when he said, God wants to be your father? You could be the children of God. What did that imply to them? What was Jesus trying to say? So let's start there. There were four things that if you had a father in that culture back then, and throughout the scripture, you can see this threading through. This was God's original design. If you had a father, a godly father, you had at least four things. You had an identity. You knew who you were. You were, had a relationship. You have built-in relationships. These people are family. These people are family friends. This is our neighborhood etc., etc. You had built-in discipline, not just somebody to punish you if you messed up, but somebody to coach you so that you got good. Somebody to help you build habits that would carry you through your whole life. Somebody to help you create rhythms that actually made you the kind of person you needed to be. And then there was usually some sort of a family business, some sort of a thing. This is what we do as a family. This is, this is who we are. Not all of that has to explicitly be applied to every single person in every culture everywhere. But those four big ideas were absolutely foundational to what Jesus is saying when he said, God wants to be our father. Let's explore that for just a minute. First of all, the idea of identity. If we are the children of God, that defines who we are more than anything else ever. Here in America, increasingly, and throughout the world, the, the idea tends to go the opposite way. My identity is who I think I am. And then let's see if I agree with my family. Let's see if I agree with my friends. Let's see if I agree with my school or my church or my everybody else. But I get to choose that. Jesus has turned that away. Part of what he means by God as our father is I'm a child of God first. Does that, does that make sense? In Genesis 17, you see God calling Abraham. He said, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, which means father of nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. In Jesus's day, most of the people, if you would have asked them, who are you? And, and really asked some deep questions, they would not only have said who their family was, but they would have said, I'm a child of Abraham. I am, I'm an Israelite. I am somebody from that line. Almost nobody, no matter how faithful they were to God in that day, would have said, I'm a child of God. They would have said a child of Abraham. So directly saying you were a child of God was like, wait a second. What are you trying to tell me here? There were just a couple of places in the whole Old Testament where you see God identified as a father. One of those is Psalm 68. It says, a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. In other words, when somebody is an orphan, when they are on their own, I'll give them an identity. They are still part of my family. Then you have these relationships, these built-in relationships. We love each other. We choose unity. We choose to work together because we're all part of the family. Everybody knows this, that when you have a group of friends or a group of people you work with, or especially when you have a family, you, you love them, but you also, you're kind of stuck with them at the same time. Do you understand what I mean by that? I don't mean that in a bad way, but they are, that's your family. 
That's it. We got to make this work because we're family. We got to make this work. There's an urgency there. That's what Malachi is talking about when he says, have we not all one father? And I personally think he might be talking about Abraham at that point, but it's clear he's also talking about God. So let's just keep going. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Again, when Jesus said God is our father, he's trying to create this idea that we're a family. We have to figure out how to get along. We have to figure out how to make this work. Psalm 68 verse 5 is, I'm sorry, I must have got that wrong. There's another Psalm 103.13, there we go. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That's one of the clearest ones in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a simile. It's, it's, it's not saying necessarily God is a father yet, but it's saying he's like a father. This is one that they would hold on to. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Anybody who's ever had children or who's had somebody that you really just took under your wings somehow, you know that there's something about that. There's a special kind of compassion you have for the people that God has placed under your care, and especially your own kids. Is this tracking so far? Is this making sense? All of this is implied when Jesus said, we're, we're the children of God. God. God is our father. He's saying all of these, which is why it was so shocking. The third one is discipline. Uh, You see this a little bit in the Old Testament, Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. How many look back on whatever discipline you got as a child and that was when you felt really loved? Yeah, that's what I thought. How, How many can look back though and realize that Well, I won't say that because we've all had such a diverse background. But I think most of us, at least, if our parents were even close to doing what God had asked them to do as parents, we can look back and realize that they were expressing love by disciplining us. I know I can. I I remember my Uncle John... uh, used to pester the life out of me. We'd get together, when I was growing up in Papua New Guinea, we'd get together with him maybe a couple times a year. He'd just pester me and pester me and pester me. And I actually liked it. I knew I, I, most of the time, but I remember one time it was kind of getting to me and he could tell. And he said, John, put his hand on my shoulder. He said, I want you to know something. He said, I only tease the people that I love. And you. <laughs> you. But doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Honestly, doesn't it feel like that when, when we're going through hard times or when, when we're struggling with something? Doesn't it feel like sometimes even God is saying, hey, I only discipline people I love and you? It does feel like that. And that's not you. You're, you're not a weird weirdo if that's what it feels like sometimes. But I promise you that God, of all fathers there's ever been, I guarantee you God only disciplines those he loves. The family business is the other big idea. And this was so clear throughout. If you look at every time God established a covenant or reestablishes one or gives them another chance or another chance, look at any time. There's always this idea that he is making 
these people, his people, and given them the task to reach the nations. It's, it's relentless throughout the Old Testament. It's much, much clearer in the New Testament. But it's, it happens every single time. It's, it's very clear as well in what the Messiah would be and who the Messiah would, how he would act. Isaiah 9, 6, this will be very familiar. Uh, For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now we're talking about the Messiah, Jesus, playing this role. Somebody who's going to create these things in an eternal way. Psalm 89, he shall cry to me. Again, this is a messianic passage. It's a psalm. It sounds like it's talking about David. It uses the name David, but it's really talking about the, the ultimate king, the Messiah. He shall cry out to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So again, when Jesus said things like, I and the father are one, or God is my father, they understood. That's why they were so upset. He's either saying that he's the Messiah, or he's saying he's God. You're probably, that's, a, that's a big deal to say that you're a child of God. But I hope you notice too that Jesus never wasted any time offering this to all of us. In his first big recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, you can read it with me. Wow, hold on. Let's just say this out loud together. And this is true of you if you are a a follower of Jesus. If you are truly following him, you're walking through, you've taken the steps, you are following him every day. This is true of you. You're not just a follower. You're not just somebody who's a fan of God. It's this. Let's say it together. We are God's children. So Jesus Christ makes it possible for God's for us to be in his family, the scriptures outline for us exactly the kind of identity, the kind of relationships, and the kind of responsibilities that come with that. Again, Jesus, that very first sermon, he's, he's making this so clear. He's not keeping this secret. This isn't some next level thing. This is, this is he's just laying it out there for us. Same sermon, a couple of verses later. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 6, 9, same sermon, last 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 6, 9, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the first time you see that anywhere in the Bible. The Old Testament, they don't pray. They are great and sovereign Lord or almighty God, God of Abraham. They, they have all these different kinds of big titles, but they're all kind of distant. Jesus says, hey, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. They're going, who is this guy? What in the world is he telling us we can do? But you can tell the believers got it. You you read the rest of the, there's the gospels that tell the story and the teachings of Jesus. Acts that tells the story of his first 
disciples and all the, as the church started and grew. And then you've got all these letters from church leaders trying to encourage everybody that we still hold on to. That's what we call the New Testament. And throughout that, you see verses like this. I just picked one. This is Romans 1 verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They consistently picked up on this and saw God as their father and them as his children. Romans 15. Listen, you can, if you just squint a little bit, you'll hear all these themes that we just explored. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of endurance and encouragement, that's discipline. The positive discipline, which is what the Bible actually focuses on much more than the punishment. It includes both, but it's this idea of encouragement and endurance and helping you make it through, become a person who can get through what you need to get through. May he grant you to live in such harmony with one another. There's that relationship, that built in, we're family, we got to make this work thing. And then you've got with Christ Jesus that together... With one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's not only the identity, but the responsibility. Is this tracking? Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Paul says, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through him we exist. So here's, that's one major theme that Jesus built on the whole time. Here's the other one. This is where we get our, the title of this sermon, 1 Corinthians 3.16. We're working our way there. This is the other major theme of Jesus that he built all his other teachings on. It's the idea that we are God's temple. Would you say that out loud with me? We are God's temple. See, through Christ, we're not only supposed to be forgiven of our sins... We're supposed to be cleansed and invited into his presence. And we are filled with his spirit. We now serve as the portable portals to heaven and to God, to his power. We're supposed to be lighting the way to God, making it easy for people to find God and connect with God, providing that ourselves and leading them to Jesus, who ultimately is the only one who can provide that. And also together we're following him. You see these themes so clearly. Uh, we actually explored this for those of you who come here all the time. And welcome to everybody. I try to say that every time. But just in case, we're so thankful for every single person here. But if you've, if you've been here a while, you probably remember not too long ago, we actually spent about a month or so walking through the idea of the tabernacle. Okay? I'm not going to see hands because it would scare me how few people probably remember. But all that stuff still lives online. If you want to dig deep, it's all out there. But here's a quick idea because the temple followed the exact same format and all this beauty is in that what would happen is if you can leave the graphic up there for a second uh, they they would encamp around that tabernacle they would they would camp around that which made a giant shape of a cross i don't think it's a coincidence the bible never explicitly says that that was supposed to be that way, but it sure looks like it to me. There's even, if you just squint a tiny bit, you can almost see a cross in this too. Because here was the process. To approach God at all, you had to come up to the sin altar. 
this was as far as most people got, just the sin altar. But then your sins could be forgiven. Only the priest could take the next step. Now there's a ceremonial washing. This is that basin I mentioned earlier. Now they dip their hands in water. It doesn't really clean them. It's a symbol to show that God is declaring them clean because they are obeying him. They dip their hands in the water. Now they can approach the holy place. And in the first part of the holy place, there's all these symbols of fellowship. There's food and there's light and there's a wonderful smell that represents the prayers going up to God. It's a communal spot. And then at the very head of the cross, the deepest part, the holiest of holy places inside that beautiful place. This is the tabernacle and in the temple, same format, same everything. You get all the way in there. There's the Ark of the Covenant. That's the actual presence of God. One person got to go in there one time a year. So they're comfortable with this whole idea. Imagine their surprise when the spirit comes on Jesus. Imagine when he starts telling them that his spirit is going to come in them. Imagine their surprise when Peter says to repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What? But this is consistent. We see it. Here's, here's a couple more. Here's 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Here comes the word geek stuff again. You there, in English, we can't really tell the difference, but in, in the original Greek there, that's plural. He's saying, you are the temple. And whoever destroys God's temple, God will destroy. Saying a very similar thing to the idea that we're family, so we've got to make this work together. God uses every possible symbol he can to get his core messages across. And you can see them all threading through. But he's saying you can't, you can't separate that. Ephesians 3, 16. Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. And he says he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, some of you who have heard sermons before, studied the Bible before, you're probably going, wait a second. I thought that verse meant our bodies. I thought that was why we're not supposed to smoke and stuff. Anybody thinking that? You're on the right track, but that's a couple chapters later. That's 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul zooms in even closer and he starts talking about that. He says, we collectively are the temple, but each one of us is as well. The spirit doesn't just dwell among us. He dwells in us individually, which is why sin is such a big deal, which is why God says to flee from sin. In this passage, he especially singles out sexual immorality, but he says, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So here's that verse you're probably thinking of. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body, this is singular your, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? People have understood that a lot of different ways over the years. 
But the idea that God himself is in each one of us, he sees through our eyes, he hears everything we hear, he touches what we touch, that's a big deal. That's why sin is even, it's so bad. As Christians, we're not really called to be the sin police for the rest of the world, but we are called to take sin really seriously ourselves. We're called to absolutely run from it because we have God's spirit in us. And when we do that individually and collectively, the whole world can see it. It's just as clear as that pillar of fire, that pillar of cloud that used to hover over the tabernacle and the Israelites used to follow around and and everybody else could see for miles. Oh, there we go. There's the presence of God. It should be that clear for us. So one more time, as we wrap up this morning, I'd like you to say these truths one more time. And I hope this is true for each one of you. Don't say it if it's not. I don't want to encourage you to lie. But if you know you are a child of God and you are the temple of God this morning, you've already made those choices and you're still making those choices every day, then say it with boldness. And let's explore these ideas. First, let's talk about what it means one more time. And then we're going to say we are God's children together. It, It means you have an identity. If you are part of God's family, hear me on this, this is so important. Your identity is not based on you. It's not based on your feelings. It's not based on your personal preferences. It's not based on who accepts you into their group. Your identity is you are a child of God. And everything builds out from there. Second one religion. I'm sorry. It's a relationship. It's not a religion. I got that totally backwards. (laughs) I shouldn't even use notes. I usually just throw myself so badly. It's a relationship. We are not just doing this for fun. This is not something that's like a hobby to us. We are a family. We are collectively the temple of God. When we come to Christ, when we are reborn by him, when he places his spirit in us, everything changes. We are now a new thing completely. The old has gone, the new has come. And this discipline idea, we've got to be able to embrace this, not in a judgmental way, not in a legalistic way, but in a effective way. How many here like sports movies? Even if you don't like sports, you like some sports movies. I I love them. And I I like Rocky and all those others. And my favorite part of every one is the training montage. Because you're pretty sure, except for Rocky, you're pretty sure they're always going to win, right? There wouldn't be a story. You're pretty sure they're going to win. It looks skeptical at times, but that's part of the fun. But you're pretty sure they're going to win this thing. But man, all that training. You know what I'm talking about? That's where you're like, oh, they got this. They got this. And you see what it takes to get there. We all have this mistaken idea. Oh, if I really wanted to put me in a ring, they're going to give me $2 million. You bet I could knock somebody out. No, you can't. (laughs) You absolutely can't. Not if they've been training and you haven't. You're going to last about two seconds. Are, Are you with me on this? But if you train... You are a boxer, you got a chance. That's what discipline is about in the scripture, is actually becoming 
what God wants us to become. And we all have that family business. We know what that is. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things he has commanded. And Jesus promises, I will be with you, actually in you, to the very end of the age. Let's say it together. We are God's children. Can we say that one more time? That's amazing. We are God's children children. And here's the second thing. And one more time, just clarifying. This means that we are, we are in the presence of God and we are always in the presence of God. And we are somehow even more in the presence of God when we get together. But if the spirit lives in you, you always are at church. You, yeah, that, one of the things that drives me nuts is when people go, Hey, don't lie in church. Don't say that we're in church. You're always in church. You are the church. If it's okay, if it's okay somewhere else, it's okay here. And if it's not okay somewhere else, it's not okay here. You are the church. The only reason this is more the church is because there's more of us in the same room at the same time. Sorry, I had to get that off my chest. Let's say it together. We are God's temple. One more big verse for you, and then we're going to invite you to do something, whatever the Spirit's leading you. 1 Thessalonians 3. 1 Thessalonians 3 doesn't have 16 verses, but here's the last couple verses. Just throwing it out for you. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is telling you today. He may be asking you to just change one thing or do something. There's a couple spaces on there where you could write something down. Lord, I'm going to do this. I hope you do that. And if what you need to do is a public decision, there's going to be somebody sitting right here off camera, and I hope that you can come and we'll walk you through that. If you just like personal prayer, I'm personally going to be at the back of the room here in a couple minutes, and and I will personally pray with you, and we can help some other people and walk you through whatever if you want to keep it private. But here's what I'm asking every one one of you to do as we stand, as we sing. Respond to what the Spirit's telling you to do. Make a choice. Make a step.